thank you so much for the hope, the grace, the joy, um, the, 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 just the love, Lord, that you give to us and that we as your sons can gather together and, uh, and, and hear your voice and search your scriptures and, um, and just be taught, Lord, of you. Lord, you said that we don't need anyone to teach us because you said that the anointing and the unction that you give us by your Holy Spirit will teach us all things and guide us into all truth. And so we ask that this morning, Lord, you would take my words way further than they could go on their own. And that you would touch our ears, touch our hearts, touch our minds and our bodies, Lord. Make us holy and clean and able to receive the pure water of your word. We look to you, Father, in these days that we live in. We need wisdom, not just for what's to come, but also for how we're to live and what it means to us personally. So please, Father, give us um, individual instruction and give us clarity as we search these things together. We thank you so much for uh, what you do and who you are. So bless us, we pray this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So turn to Matthew chapter 24. And, uh, you know, I guess you, we're going to go to Revelation, um, but that's easy enough to find that you don't have to turn there ahead of time. This has turned into an extended series, it's supposed to take about a month, maybe a month and a half, and we're on um, our sixth official time in this. Um, <clears throat> though it seems maybe a bit laborious now, I believe that uh, in days to come you'll be very glad for the things that we're, we're, we're going through and studying and just to, to be informed uh, about it. What we've done thus far is that we've looked at the entire timeline or spectrum of God's entire plan. Uh, Acts says that from known of God from the beginning are all his works, meaning that he knows from, from day one how things are going to play out on the last day. And he's told us. He's given us the framework of it uh, so that we could know. And so we have a canvas and we've laid out the skeleton of how it's all going to go. And that allows us to, as we search the scriptures on our own and hear things, to put things on that skeleton so that the picture becomes clear and clearer to us. So what I want to do today is outline the two most comprehensive portions uh, of scripture uh, that, that give to us these things and give, give, uh, add to the framework and give the context of it. I, I think the first of those, uh, very obviously, is going to be Matthew chapter 24, um, which, you know, if you want the theological uh, title for this portion of scripture, it's called the Olivet Discourse. And the reason for that is that it's a sermon that Jesus gave on the Mount of Olives, a discourse on the Mount of Olives. Thus, it's the Olivet Discourse. Now, the context of, of this chapter is extremely fascinating. Uh, notice in verse 1 what it says. It says, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. Now, why would the disciples have to show Jesus the buildings of the temple? I mean, he's the one who was the architect for the temple. And they knew that. They understood that. So why would they come out to show him? The answer to that is because of what took place in Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23 is the most scathing rebuke 
that Jesus ever gave to anyone, and it was directed at the religious establishment of his day. He was in the temple, he had overturned the tables, and he began ranting on the Pharisees and the scribes, calling them hypocrites, calling them liars, calling them dead men's bones, uh, you know, whitewashed walls, tombs. I mean, he, he, he said, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, your children of hell, sons of the devil. I mean, you read what Jesus said, and it totally shatters the image you might have of gentle Jesus, meek and mild. And it was by far the, 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 the craziest thing any of the disciples had ever heard Jesus say. And they were puzzled because they didn't see Jesus as someone who would want to destroy ties and relations with the, with the establishment, but rather to build a bridge. And so after coming out of that, they come to Jesus and it's almost as if they desire to calm him down a little bit. <laughs> you know, like, hey, Jesus, you know, don't you think you're being a little extreme. I mean, look, some of this is of God. I mean, look at these things, the temple, the temple mount, the history. I mean, this is huge. Yeah, there's some hypocrisy. Yeah, things aren't what they're supposed to be. But I mean, really, I mean, do you have to go that crazy? And that's the context. So they come forth to show him the buildings of the temple. Now, expecting that Jesus is going to concede a little bit, They're shocked when he does it, but he drives the wedge a little deeper. Notice verse two. It says, and Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? The temple, the temple mount, the stones, the the, the gold, the glamour. Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. In other words, you look at these things, the temple and the beauty of it, as a proof that the Jews aren't completely off their rocker. He says, I'm telling you that every single one of these stones is going to be tossed down, thrown down. Now, again, the disciples are shocked even further. And that leads them now to ask the question that they ask in verse three. It says, now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. So apocalyptic was the vision that transpired in their minds when Jesus said not one stone will be left upon another, that it brought them to, well, that would be the end of the world. For the temple to be thrown down, that's going to be the end of the world. And so they ask Jesus, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? How will we know when we're getting close to that? And so the rest of Matthew chapter 24, and really even into 25, is the answer to that question. That's the context of this passage of Scripture. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the world? I'm so glad that the disciples asked that question because it affords us the opportunity to hear the answer, to eavesdrop uh, and listen in uh, on these things. Now, here's the key to unlocking Jesus' answer. Jesus gives to them, in response to their question, a three-point sermon. If you've been around churches in any length of time, you understand what a three-point sermon is. He answers the question, but he answers it three different ways. And here's why. Because depending on who you are, the answer to that question differs. It's not the same. The, The scenario, the end of the world... The signs of his coming are not the same for everyone. 
So he answers the question for three different people groups, the three different people groups that they, the answer's pertinent to. Number one, and it's the first point of Jesus' sermon, is in verses 3 through 14. And that is the end times as it relates to the nations. If you're taking notes, you want to write that down. The end times as it relates to the nations. That is the world at large. The context is to the generic sea of humanity, the nations. And when you read the signs that Jesus gives, that becomes extremely clear and obvious because they are all signs that pertain to the nations. He said that kingdom will rise against kingdom, nation will rise against nation. There will be earthquakes, famines, pestilences in various places. Those are all worldwide things that affect generically the sea of humanity. And so that's the sign to the nations in that thing. Now, he brings it right through in verse 14 to the end. When you read it and go through, you'll see that. He says, you know, this gospel will be preached to all nations as a testimony, and then the end will come. And, and that brings it to the end. So that's the end of the first point. That is the end times as it relates to the nations. Then point number two is verses 15 all the way through verse 31. And that is the end times as it relates to Israel singularly. That is just the nation of Israel or just the Jews. And that becomes extremely obvious once you begin to read the text because all of the signs he gives pertain to Israel alone. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation, that's Daniel the prophet and it's something that happens in the temple in Jerusalem. He says that when these things happen, let them that are in Judea not, you know, or let them flee unto the mountains. Well, who lives in Judea? Of course, that's in Israel. That's the Jews. He says, pray that your flight be not on the Sabbath day. Now, that wouldn't affect anyone in the world except for the Jews, because in Israel, on the Sabbath day, you can't catch a taxi cab, you can't ride a bus, you can't ride a train, you can't take an elevator. You can't do anything that constitutes even the slightest bit work. And so if it's on the Sabbath day, you're going to be in trouble. He says, let them that are on the housetops not come down into the house to get anything else. Where in the world do they live on the housetops? Where that's the, where that's the you know, your dwelling place, your Miranda, your patio in Israel. So all of the signs that are given in this passage refer directly to Israel. And even the scripture that Jesus quotes, who's going to understand the things that he says other than the Jews? And so it's to the Jews. And interestingly, he brings it through the tribulation. If you look uh, at, at verse um, 24, he says, for false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, don't go out. Or look, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Uh, for wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. And then notice verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And that's the tribulation. 
you know, and, and the Jews we've studied thus far, they're going to go through the tribulation. And then he brings it to the end in verse 31, that he will send his angels with the sound of a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now, don't get confused and think that that's the rapture. It's not. It's a prophecy. It's a reference to Isaiah chapter 28, which says that at the end of the tribulation, God's going to go and gather his scattered Jews from wherever they are throughout the world, and he's going to assemble them to Israel. That's what it's talking about. It takes place at the end. So he wraps up point number two, the end times as it relates to the Jews. Now, point number three of, of this answer to the question, what is the sign of your coming, the end of the age? is the end times as it relates to the church. Not the nations, generically, not Israel specifically, but now the church, that is the bride of Christ, you and me. And we need to know the answer to that question as it relates to us. Now, it's not going to look the same for the church as it is for Israel. They go through the tribulation. We do not. So what does he say to the church? He says, learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch is, is already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass until all these things take place. Now, I know I've mentioned it in past studies that this is a reference to the regathering of Israel. And we could talk more about that later, but I don't want to go down that rabbit trail right now. But what is the sign for the church? What are we looking for? Notice in verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the son of man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. He describes two things there. Number one is the conditions on earth just prior to that return. He says it will be much like it was in the days of Noah. Now, if you want to understand what that was, just turn to Genesis chapter 6. Don't do that now, but on your own, write it down. And it describes very candidly what it was like on earth during the days of Noah. Violence, corruption, sexual perversion, demonic activity. You know, it, it's, it's very picturesque in its description of what things were like. But Jesus adds to that, that there was also an attitude of cavalier living. That is, hey, Life goes on, eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. Those are everyday things that we all do. Nothing right or wrong about them. They just are. And he says that that's going to be the attitude. It's like, hey, all things just keep going and there's no end will ever come. Hey, there's ups and downs in the economy. We go through bearish times and or bullish times and bearish times and this will work itself out. That's always going to be the attitude. You know, and, and it says that they didn't know that they were right on the cusp of God's intervention and judgment. But here's, what, here's the end game for the church, verse 40. It says, Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken 
and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. And so what does the end look like for the church? Rapture. That's, that's what's going to happen. You know, we don't, we're not going to see the sun turn to, to, to sackcloth or the moon to blood. You know, that's tribulation stuff. We're looking for the rapture. And that's the end times as it relates to the church. However, his point to the church doesn't end there. It goes on, and you can read that on your own, that next part. It talks about the man who wasn't ready. That if he had been ready, he wouldn't have allowed the thief to break into his house. Watch, therefore, and be ready. In other words, there's going to be two different types of church people in the last days. There's going to be those that are truly saved, and there's going to be some that are truly surprised. (laughs) That is, some of them were professors only. They were going to church, they were saying the right words, but there was no conversion in their heart. They hadn't been born again, regenerated. Those people will not be raptured. But I go to church. Why aren't I being raptured? Why didn't I go? Lord, Lord, Jesus said, they'll say to me in that day. Didn't we teach in your streets? Didn't we prophesy in your name? And Jesus will say, I never knew you. See, it isn't about whether we go to church or what we do, but are you really in a relationship with Jesus Christ? Have you truly been born again, repent of your sins and turn to him? That's going to be the defining mark. And God knows how to segregate between the professors and those that are truly saved. Some will be saved, some will be surprised. And so he goes on uh, in that. And so that's the framework of Matthew chapter 24 and then on into chapter 25. It's a three-point sermon. Depending on who you are, the scenario plays out slightly differently. To the nations, it's going to be hell. To the Jews, it's going to be hell, but they'll be preserved And to the church, we're looking for the glorious appearing, the blessed hope of Jesus Christ returning for his church to take us uh, to be with him. And so that's the answer to Jesus' question on uh, the end times, you know, when it was presented by his disciples. Uh, Now turn to the book of Revelation. And, you know, if you have questions, we'll hit them at the end. The book of Revelation is the second comprehensive portion of Scripture that deals with the end times. The context of the book of Revelation, or the setting, if you would, is that it's written by the Apostle John, one of the twelve that was originally, initially called and walked with Jesus while he was on the earth. He was the last living apostle at the time that he wrote it. All of the others had been martyred for the name of Jesus. They'd all been killed for their testimony and their faith. John was attempted, they attempted to martyr him. Nero placed him in a cauldron of boiling oil in the Colosseum seeking to, you know, draw you know, applause from an audience that was watching the thing take place. But God, tradition tells us, preserved John. He didn't die in that oil. He was unscathed by it. And when Nero saw that, he said, hey, I can't kill this guy, so I know what I'm going to do. And so he exiled him. 
He put him on the island of Patmos where he wouldn't be able to affect any other people. So he was in seclusion, isolation on the island of Patmos. And no doubt he was thinking, God, why would you not just take me home? Why this seclusion? Why this isolation? Why this tribulation and difficulty? The answer is because God wasn't finished with John yet. He had another message for him to give to the church. It's the message that's contained. We call it the book of Revelation. He was on the island of Patmos. He was about 91 years old. And chapter 1 describes the scene. He was in the island of Patmos in seclusion because of his testimony in the word of God. And it was there, in that place of isolation, that God met him and gave to him the revelation that we have in front of us. In front of us. Now, the premise of the book is that it is an unveiling. That's what revelation means. It means something that is previously hidden that is now being revealed. I think that's ironic because if you ask most people, even Christians, if they have an understanding of the book of Revelation, the response that you'll get is, no one can understand the book of Revelation. That's, that's a mystery. We'll never really under... No, 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 listen. The whole idea, the whole reason it was given was that it's to be a revelation, an unveiling something that's not hard to understand, something that we can uh, uh, understand, and it can be. It's it's much simpler than you think uh, to understand the book of Revelation. Here's why. Number one, the book of Revelation is a glossary. Remember when you were in school, uh, you know, some of us still are, you know, it's like constant, but you know, remember when you were in school and, and, and and you would be going through a textbook and there would be a question or a math problem? Where did you find the answers? That's right, back of the book. Look in the back of the book and you'll find the answers there. And in in a lot of ways, that's the key to understanding not just the book of Revelation, but the whole Bible. Here's what I mean. There are 404 verses in the book of Revelation. Of those, 278 of them, more than half, are direct references to the Old Testament. In other words, more than half of the book of Revelation is a reference to stuff that's already been said throughout the rest of the Bible. So, if you want to understand the context of what's taking place in the book of Revelation, then go back to the Old Testament when you find those references and see what they mean and understand what's going on and it will give you understanding as to what it means in the book of Revelation. And you can do that the other way too. When you see the things in the Old Testament... And you say, wait, I read that somewhere else. That's from Revelation. Then go to Revelation and the two things will unlock each other. So you look at the rest of the Bible as your guide to understanding the book of Revelation. And yes, it takes a little bit of work, but it unlocks it. It becomes quite simple. The other reason why Revelation is not a hard book to understand is that it's the only book in the Bible that comes with its own outline. I mean, the outline for the book of how to understand it is given to us right in the book. Look at verse 19 of chapter 1. This is, if you have a red letter Bible, you'll notice that the letters are in red because this is Jesus speaking to John and he's telling him what to write. And he says, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. Three parts to the book of Revelation. Past, 
present, and future. The things which were, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. And that's exactly what John does. In order, meaning that the book of Revelation is easy to understand because all you have to do is follow the flow. The things which were, the things which are, and then the things which shall be, and it's a progression. Chapter 11 doesn't come before chapter 6, and chapter 17 doesn't come before chapter 14. Just follow the flow. Take it in order. It's a progression. See, once you try to mix it all up and say, well, this happens here, and you got to go back in time to fit this in, that's when it gets confusing. But when you take it as it was given, it becomes quite simple. So what is this outline? The things which were, the things which are, the things which shall be. Part one of that, the things which were, is chapter one. For John, the apostle, what are the things that were? For John, it was Jesus. He was one of the 12. He walked with Jesus. He heard Jesus talk. He was anointed and sent by Jesus as an apostle to lay the foundation for the church. That's what the things that were for John. And so what is chapter one? It's a vision of the glorified, resurrected Jesus. That's what it is. It's the things which were for John. It's Jesus. Then, part two, the things which are. Part two of the outline. Well, what are the things that are for John, who is the author of the book? Well, when John writes the book, He's in the church age. That's 90 AD. We're in the church age. That is what is for John during that time. And so part two of the book of Revelation is chapters two and three. What is it? Seven letters to seven churches, which were literal churches that existed in Asia Minor that had real people and real places and real issues. That's what those letters are. Those seven churches represent the whole church in that, listen, every church can be ministered to and relate with the things that were written in those seven letters. We read those seven letters today and we learn from them. We recognize the problems that those churches face. We say, yeah, we're still going through that today. We listen to the instruction that Jesus gave to those churches and we say, yes, that instruction helps us. And so the context of them speaks to us even in the modern day. So they were literal churches then. They apply to our issues today. And then number three, they also, and listen, they also give a panoramic, panoramic, yes, perspective and view of the whole church age. When you read, and I've mentioned this, this is probably the second time in the last few weeks that I've brought this out, but I'll say it again. If you line those letters up side by side, each one of them represents a distinct portion of the church age in chronological order. The church in Ephesus represents the first church, the early church, the book of Acts church. And you read the thing and you see what Jesus said and you say, yeah, that makes sense. The second one, the letter to Smyrna represents the suffering church, the age of persecution that came after the apostles were gone. And you read the letter to Smyrna and you see that that's what Jesus said to them, that they were suffering. It makes sense. You say, yeah, I see that. The third one, the letter to Pergamum, represents the pre-Roman church era. 
when the church was infiltrating with the Roman Empire. It hadn't fully taken root yet, but the integration was beginning. And Jesus brings that out. He says, hey, I know the way you're going and I know where Satan's seed is. Not a good direction. The fourth letter, the letter to what's... The fourth one, the letter to, uh, say it again. Yeah, Thyatira, thank you. That represents the, the, the Roman church, the Roman Catholic church, which is the direction that the church went, you know, from around 316 AD with the edict of toleration given by Constantine. And it carried all the way up through until the Reformation. And you read what Jesus had to say to the church in Thyatira, and it's very clear. You know, again, a lot of Old Testament references that shed a lot of light. Jezebel and the Inquisition and all those things. You see them there. You say, wow, Lord, how did you know? It's so incredible how this lays down so, so, so uh, incredibly over the history of what we know. Then you come to the church in Sardis. Sardis represents the Protestant Reformation. So you read what Jesus says to them. He says, you have a name as though you live, but you're dead. Hey, isn't that true? When we look at a lot of the Protestant churches, they were alive and they still have a name, but a lot of them, sadly, have died. They're just a shell. They're just buildings. They're liturgies. They're ideologies of things, men of times past, still holding on to a tradition, but the Spirit of God has departed from it. He's done something new and fresh. Not different, but new and fresh. And so you read it, it becomes clear. And then... The last two churches, the church in Philadelphia and the church in Laodicea, they both represent the last day's church. It's interesting because one of those churches is right on, holding fast to his word, having a little strength but not denying his name. The other church is the only church that Jesus is not even in that church. He addresses them not as the church in Laodicea, but the church of the Laodiceans. In other words, this is your own thing. You've invented this. I didn't plant this. And you read what happens and you find that Jesus not only indicts them harshly, but then he tells them pointedly, I'm not even in there. I stand at the door and knock. And if any man will let me in, I'll come in. And so you have those seven churches. Now, interestingly, when you look at them again from that perspective, uh, what you find and what you discover is that the last uh, four, the last three churches, one, two, three, four churches, the church, the, the one that represents the Catholic uh, Roman church, uh, Thyatira, and then Sardis, and then Laodicea and Philadelphia. What you'll notice in there is that all four of those have a reference to the second coming, the end times or the tribulation. Why? Because all four of those churches will exist in the last days. The apostolic church no longer does. The suffering age is over. Thyatira is gone. I mean, uh, Pergamus is gone. So these four. And so I'm just giving you some teasers. I, I would love to take you to each of these verses because it's amazing. But, you know, go through and read those letters and, and see it there. You know, one more thing, and then we'll move on to part three. The church in Philadelphia, which is the church in the last days that's right on the money. In verse 10 of chapter three, Jesus says this. He says, because you have kept the word of my patience, I also will keep you from the hour of temptation or tribulation, which is coming upon the whole earth to try those that dwell on the face of the earth. 
that's, a, that's, that's an incredible encouragement for us to continue in the things that are right and also to recognize that there's an hour of trouble coming and that there's a possibility of not being a part of it, <laughs> you know? And so an interesting thing, look at it, uh, you know, find it out. Okay, so those are the things that are church, the church age for John. Then turn to chapter four. I want you to see this. In verse one of chapter four, notice what John says. He says, after these things. In the King James, it says, after this. And it's the same exact Greek phrase, metatauta is the Greek, if, in case you cared. It's the exact same phrase that's used in the outline in chapter 1, verse 19, when he says, write the things that will be after this, metatauta. And so John says, chapter 4, verse 1, after this. And then he repeats it uh, at the end of the verse. He says, after these things, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here and I will show you the things which must take place after this meditata. And so chapter four begins the third part of the divine outline. Past, present, future. This begins the future. Now, the past was Jesus. The present is the church age. The future is what happens after the church age. Look at the verse again. I want you to see the language there. He says, after these things, that is after the church time, when the church age is complete, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I heard after these things, the first voice I heard at the end of the church age was like a trumpet speaking with me and saying, Come up here and I will show you the things which must take place after this. And then just the beginning of verse two. And immediately I was in the spirit and behold a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. Any, any guesses as to what that might be a reference to right there? <laughs> Anybody else see that? The rapture? You know, after the church age, as soon as it's over, the first thing that happened was, listen, watch, a door, a trumpet, whose voice said, come up here. And immediately I was in the spirit and I saw the throne, the throne sat in heaven. What did Jesus say? When you see all these things, know that it is near, even at the what? Come on, guys. The door, yes. Know that it is near, even at the door. What did Paul say? That at the sound of the last trumpet, right? The trumpet. And what did he say? In the twinkling of an eye, boom, immediately, right? We'll be caught up to meet the Lord and be with him in the air. It's incredible. It's like, whoa, you know, uh, all right, maybe you don't see it. <laughs> I'm way more excited about it than you are, but that's okay. It's early on. A, it's early on a Saturday, you know. Part three of this outline, the things which shall be, divides into three segments, and you can write this down in your notes. Chapters four and five is the church in heaven. It's the church in heaven. And you see the church clearly pictured as being in heaven. At the end of chapter five, it describes a multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation under heaven. That's the church. It's not Jews. 
They're not every tribe, tongue, and nation. They are Israel singularly. You see the church in heaven in chapters 4 and 5. And the preparations being made for the second part, number 2, chapters 6 through 19, the tribulation on earth. The church in heaven, 4 and 5, the tribulation on earth, 6 through 19. And that's what you find in Revelation 6 through 19 is what's going to take place during the tribulation time, that hour of judgment that's coming upon the face of the whole earth. Ah, I hope you can write shorthand <laughs> and quick, because get ready for it. Here comes. Chapter 6 gives us the four horsemen of the apocalypse and the seal judgments. As the seals to the title deed of planet earth are opened, wrath is released and there's consequences seen on earth. It's all in chapter 6. Chapter 7 tells us about 144 Jews, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, that will be anointed and sent to preach the gospel to all those that are still remaining on earth. So God still is going to save people, and God still loves people even during the tribulation time. And people will still get saved for the first half of the tribulation. 144,000 Jews. By the way, some say that Jesus cannot return until the gospel has reached every area of the globe. That's not true for two reasons. Number one, Paul, the apostle, had said in his day in Colossians that the gospel already had gone to every corner of the world. Number two is that after the rapture of the church, the gospel will continue to spread. The 144,000 will take it yet again to the four corners of the earth. Furthermore, it says that there's going to be an angel that's going to fly through the heavens declaring the everlasting gospel. So it isn't the church's sole responsibility to see that through. It will happen. We're called to go. But don't let anybody say Jesus can't come because there's a tribe somewhere that hasn't yet heard. That's to say the Lord delays his coming. That's parenthetical. Anyway, chapter 8 through 10 describes the trumpet judgments, the second phase of wrath that's poured out upon the earth. You can read through those trumpet judgments and see what happens. In chapter 11, we're told about two prophets that will be sent, Moses and Elijah. In fact, they're not named, but we assume that they're Moses and Elijah because of what they do. When you read Revelation 11, that becomes clear. It says that these two have power to shut up the heavens, that it doesn't rain, a reference to Elijah, Elijah the prophet, and you know, to smite the earth with plagues as Moses did. And so we, 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 there's some uh, uh, assumption there. You, they don't have to be. I could be wrong. I don't think I'll go to hell for that. I'm telling you what I think. Two prophets in chapter 11. And then you get the midway point of the tribulation. So after chapter 11, you've come to the middle point. Three and a half years have passed. In chapter 12, it's a vision of Israel. The woman that has a child, the dragon seeks to wipe out the child. It talks about how the dragon was angry and so he persecuted the woman. It's a great picture. We've talked about it here on a Saturday morning. Uh, we went through that chapter um, in the spring. Um, but it's a reference to Israel and what will happen to them once uh, they flee from Judea. Chapter 13 is all about the Antichrist. You've heard of the mark of the beast? You know, the number 666? The false prophet and the lying signs, all of that is talked about in chapter 13. In chapter 14, 
The ministry of the 144,000 Jews is complete. And they are again ushered, they're, they're seen there in heaven. And at this point now, for your thinking, for your note-taking, at this point, the only thing left for planet Earth is judgment. There's no more salvation from this point on. After the midway point of the tribulation. Do you remember when Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world? And then he says, if the salt loses its savor, then the earth is good for nothing. He says, it is henceforth good for nothing. That is the earth. Read the context. And that is that once the salt is no longer present, the earth will rot. And that's what happens from Revelation 14 onward. There's no more salt. There's no more light. They're only disgust and filth. There's nothing left that can be redeemed at that point, And it's only uh, judgment that remains. And the only people that will be protected at that point are those Jews that ran and found their place in the wilderness. Chapter 15 is the preparation for the final bull judgments. The last seven judgments that will be the most harsh, the most severe, and that will complete the outpouring of God's wrath upon the earth. That's chapter 16. Uh, chapter 16, you read about those bulls and what takes place when they're poured out. Now, chapters 17 and 18 are parenthetical, meaning that it's sidebar information. And what they describe for us is the fall and the judgment of two Babylons. Mystery Babylon in chapter 17 and commercial Babylon in chapter 18. Mystery Babylon is the false religious system that will permeate and pervade the whole world and govern the religious thinking of all people during the tribulation time. It will be the seat of Antichrist's spiritual ideology. Mystery Babylon. And it discusses the judgment of that and how God will judge it. It's very uh, descriptive. You should read it. There's some great insights. Uh, it seems to highlight or indicate that it will come from Rome, but it will have ties to Jerusalem. Interesting stuff. Chapter 18 is commercial Babylon, the false economic system that really will become the God of the world in the sense that uh, when you see what happens to it as it's judged, uh, it's an interesting chapter as well. And so those chapters are parenthetic. They discuss the fall of those two systems. And then chapter 19 is the battle of Armageddon and the second coming of Christ. The whole world is gathered together to war and fight against God. And they fight against God and lose. Jesus returns with the church. Again, described in Descriptive detail there in chapter 19. Now, we come to the third segment. Remember I told you that the third part has three subsections. The church in heaven, six and, uh, chapters 5, 4, and 5. Then, the tribulation on earth, chapters 6 through 19. We've come to the end of that. And now, part three is what happens after the tribulation. And so you have in chapter 20, the judgment of Satan and the great white throne. That is when the unrighteous, those that did not get saved, stand before God and give an account for their lives. That doesn't happen until after the millennium and at the end, the, the great white throne. You can read that in Revelation 20. Then, chapter 21 and 22 
is a description of the New Jerusalem, glorious passage of Scripture, that describe our eternal city. And then in chapter 22, it comes to an end. A new heaven and a new earth. We move on into eternity. And so that's the outline of the book of Revelation. It's not a hard book to understand. There are things in it that will puzzle you. <laughs> you know, there, there's things in it that will amaze you. Things that might strike fear in you, which is not a bad thing. I suggest that as you read the book of Revelation, you open up a file in your mind and on the top of that file, just write, wait for more information. And every time you don't understand something that you read, just put it in that little file in your mind that says, wait for more information. And I guarantee you this, that as you read the rest of scripture, as you continue to listen to messages, as you continue to walk with Jesus, one by one, those things will match up with other things that you learn and you'll be able to file them in their proper place. So read it, take it in, follow the flow, look at the outline, reference it, understand it. It's for our advantage and our benefit. And you'll be blessed. And here's how I know that you'll be blessed. Because not only is the book of Revelation the only book in the Bible that comes with its own outline, it's also the only book in the Bible that promises a blessing to those that read it. We'll close with this. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. No other book in the Bible says anything like this. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. There's a blessing attached to reading, hearing, and understanding and keeping these things. So I would encourage you to do it. And I can testify and say there sure is a blessing in that.